Well, good morning, Redeemer family, and uh, to anybody else who's joined us this morning, we're so happy to have you with us. Well, I would ask that you would please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John 1, verses 8. 1 John 1, verses 8. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to be looking at the line, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you're anything like me, you maybe thought, you know what, we just talked about this two months ago. We talked about Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. We talked about him being crucified, dead, and buried. And then we just celebrated Easter. We know and believe in the forgiveness of sins, of course. That was me. But as I dove more into this line, I learned that it is more than just the forgiveness of sins that we've received. It is also about how we, the church, are to be the extenders of the forgiveness of sins. It's got a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. So this line in the creed was actually added. It was a late addition, I should say. What happened is is that the church was coming out of arguably the worst, most violent persecution they had faced. In in, In those moments, by God's grace, many stood firm. Many Christians made it to the end. They suffered for Christ. Many of them given their lives. But many, including many church leaders, gave in. They sacrificed to the Roman gods and renounced their Christian faith publicly. But then something drastic happened. A new emperor came to power, Constantine. And all of a sudden, Christianity was no longer on the fringes of society. It was welcomed amidst the other Roman religions. Can you see why this may have led to some conflict? Ben Meyer's comments on what happened here. Predictably, the apostate believers, right, those who denied Christ, known as traitors, soon came back to church as if nothing much had happened. Put yourself in the shoes of those who stood stood firm. You've been living in fear and misery for as long as you can remember. You know, maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you saw your father get dragged off, get beaten and killed because he refused to deny Christ. What would it be like to gather again beside believers who publicly renounced their faith? Imagine sharing communion with that brother or sister. How would it feel to pass the communion plate to him? After all, Jesus said these startling words, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well-known church historian Justo Gonzalez comments on the church's response at this crucial time. After due proof of sincerity, most of them, that is those who had recanted, were readmitted to the church. After all, the church is supposed to be a people of love and forgiveness. But others protested. They insisted that the church is supposed to be holy and a witness to the truth of Christ. How then could it accept within its bosom those who were such clear sinners and who had denied the faith? That's what was going on here. 
This crisis, this controversy brought about the glorious reminder that God's people are not only the recipients, but the extenders of great forgiveness. If God could forgive the man or woman who denied him, if God could say, I forgive that, brother, then so can you, church. So can you. Right? Because you can't experience the scandalous, audacious forgiveness of God and then withhold it from your brother or sister. No, friends. The church is to be the forgiven and forgiving people. That's who we are. We can't forget that. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. So with these things in mind, look with me now to 1 John 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 8. Hear now from the Holy Word of God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So these five simple verses teach us some basic yet profound truths about sin and forgiveness. This passage helps us to understand what we're really saying when we confess this line of the creed. So let's ask that question. What are we confessing when we say that we believe in the forgiveness of sins? Well, first off, we are confessing that we believe in the real problem of sin. Sin is a real problem, and it's devastating. And when we claim to believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're saying just that. Because for there to be forgiveness of sins, right, there's got to be sin to forgive. Right? Many of us just overlook that fact. We have to cling to the forgiveness of sins, to believe that sin's presence is real. John is as bold to call us deceived, unsaved, and guilty of even calling God a liar if we say there's no sin. In verse 8, he says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So declaring this line is crucial. It's critical. Because we're declaring that we believe when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, sin came in and ruined everything. It spoiled everything. Sin entered the fabric of humanity. And it exists across all people and all cultures. And sin has been perpetuated by each one of us. None of us is without sin. Now many of you would know the story of, of the fall in the garden, right? We tell that story often. It's, it's critical to the gospel message. But many of you probably forget what happened after God rebuked Adam and Eve. Genesis tells us this. He, that is God, drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God drove out Adam and Eve. That's how serious sin is. Sin barred the people of God from his presence. Do you understand that? Adam and Eve were marred with sin and had to go. And friends, since then, since then, the whole history of mankind has been marked with sin, with its presence. Shortly after this, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And then in Genesis 6, we learn that because every intention of man's heart was bent on evil, God sent the flood. God sent the flood. Imagine that. God was so grieved at the evil and evil intents of man's heart that he sent the flood. What's the point? The point is is that sin is a real problem and it's devastating. And our culture today, if we're honest, they want to explain away everything with with something other than than sin. They say, no, that's not the problem. It's, It's mental illness. It's, it's this or that. No, no, no. It, but it's not sin. We don't believe in that. Is mental illness a part of these things? Yes. But as Christians, we believe that sin is the major problem that's plaguing us, that's plaguing the world. And we cannot deny its presence. Just because the culture wants us to bend on this, we have to stand firm. C.S. Lewis, he agreed with this, writing probably roughly 70 years ago or so. He said this, The greatest barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. That was like 70 or 80 years ago he's writing that. Do you hear that? That's not 2020. You know, we often say, oh, that previous generation, right? Oh, my generation, this and that, right? Well, C.S. Lewis said of his generation that they're not even aware of their sin. And this is a problem. He then goes on to say that in the past when the gospel was proclaimed, it promised healing to those who knew they were sick. But we, we have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. C.S. Lewis says that our job just got a little bit harder because we can no longer go into a conversation assuming that the friend, the family member, the coworker we're talking to actually believes that sin exists. But the Christian believes this. The Christian believes in this. It's the reason why we are separated from God. It's the reason why we hate and then we murder It's the reason why we lust and then we abuse. It's the reason why we're so full of ego. It's the reason why relationships are so hard. It's the reason why unity is hard even amongst brothers and sisters. It's It's the reason why things are so broken. Sin is the real problem. And we affirm this when we declare that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. But secondly, when we proclaim this line in the creed, we are also saying that we believe in the power of the cross. 
We believe that the forgiveness of sins, that God is able to forgive us through the mighty power of the cross. We're proclaiming here that Jesus is the only answer to sin. We would be without hope of ever entering the presence of God if it were not for these marvelous words. John tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then in verse, a, little, a few verses later, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John reminds the church that on this side of eternity, we're never going to attain perfect holiness. He says, keep trying, keep striving for that. Love righteousness, but you're not ever going to fully make it. But he says in effect, but Jesus did. Jesus did. And he did it on your behalf, loved one. On your behalf, on my behalf. Remember Jesus' righteous life in your place. Remember his death in your place. And John, he's a wonderful, loving pastor calling his church, my little children. He says, remember that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Saying to the Father, don't look at their sin, look at my life. Look at my sacrifice. Jesus' blood was spilled for you and me so that we could be restored. That the problem of sin could be done away with once and for all so that we could walk in the presence of God in Eden, just like Adam and Eve did. Isn't that good news? John could write to the church with such assurance, and and we, friends, can have this assurance because we believe in the power of the cross, because Jesus paid it all. And John presses this home by calling Jesus the propitiation for our sins. That big word, propitiation, It carries the idea of averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. So what John is saying is, friends, you can be sure that your sins are gone, that you're welcome in the the presence of God because Jesus was the sacrifice. He took on the wrath of God. He bore it for you. And he lived the life that you couldn't live. It was twofold, Jesus' sacrifice. Right? We always stress here at Redeemer because it's so important. The righteous, active obedience of Christ. Because Christ's sacrifice wouldn't have been worth anything if it wasn't for the fact that he was without sin. But now, now that Christ has offered himself on behalf of you and I, the roadblock is gone. The dam is gone. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom and God's presence is now open for us. We believe in the power of the cross. We believe that it is powerful enough to do away with the problem of sin once and for all. And I think it's helpful here just to remember, John says, if any of you do sin, right? he's saying you're going to fall. But as a good pastor, he reminds his people, 
that, that when you do, you have to remember what Jesus did for you, not only for your former sins, but for your future sins. Think back to this week, friend. Think back how many times have we repented, confessed our sin, and fallen again? How many of us have done that? How many of us have been battling sin, maybe the same sin for a long time? And we just think, man, God couldn't love me. He couldn't take me back. But John reminds us here, no. The power of the cross was more than enough for you, child of God. That's so much God loves you. Paid for your past, your present, and your future sins. Hallelujah. Remember that. Remember that. But thirdly, John, or not, we, we learn from this text that when we declare that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are also declaring that we believe in the awesome scope of grace. John here puts it this way. Jesus is not only the propitiation for our sins, that is for the church, but also for the sins of the whole world. John isn't saying here, we'll get this out of the way. He's not talking about universalism. He's not talking, saying that everybody will be saved one day. No, no, no. He's not saying that. Hear me. What he is saying is that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for the whole world, but efficient for the church. John wants his readers, and friends, we need to see this more and more. We need to zoom out and see the breadth and the power, the awesome scope of God's grace. Sometimes we think so little of the sacrifice of Christ, but no, it is awesome. It was awesome, and it's enough to cover the sins of the world. Matthew Henry comments on this. The extent and intent of the mediator's death reaches to all tribes, nations, and countries. And he is the only. So he is the universal atonement and propitiation for all that are saved and brought home to God and to his favor and forgiveness. How many times do we just gloss over this fact? I, would, I want to press this in, friends. Sometimes, sometimes we talk about the love of God and, and we... In a lot of ways, we make a little of it because we forget what great sinners we are. You know, we love John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. But we have, what we have to remember is that God sent his son to a world that rejected him. You and I never longed for God. We were never eager to keep his commands. And when Jesus came in the flesh, what did the world do? They crucified him. God's grace extends even to his enemies, friends, and we have to remember that, that we were his enemies. We were sinners. We were rebels. Paul reminds us of this staggering truth. In Romans 5.8, he says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, that is, while we were enemies of God, while we were doing our own thing, while, while we were rebelling against him, Christ came to die for you. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
We were rebels who fought against God, and yet He loved us enough to send His, only, His one and only Son. For people like you and me who've offended Him, not only that, who've offended His very creation. How many times have you and I sinned against the people around us? How many times have we sinned against our spouse, our kids, our coworkers, our family? We've sinned greatly against God and against one another. And yet, the atonement, Christ's atonement, is so great. It's more than sufficient to cover those sins. We need to remember that, the awesome scope of grace, that this is offered to the most vile of sinners, to the sinner who the world would see and say, let him rot in prison. He deserves no second chance. When we declare that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are saying, that's not the case. Because Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, it was sufficient that if that man, that woman who did that awful, heinous thing turns to God, they will be forgiven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Many of you, many of you know that the story of Jim Elliot. I think Pastor Levi mentioned this a few weeks ago, but anyways, him and, and a few friends, they went to this, this remote tribe who was known for just awful things. I believe it was cannibal, cannibalism too. Levi, is that correct? Possibly. Anyways, he went, him and his friends, and, and they knew that it might be their death. And, and they made contact with the tribe But shortly after that, this tribe murdered them. They went to go and share about the forgiveness of sins, and yet they were murdered for it. And then some time passed when Jim Elliott's wife went back to this tribe, made contact, and actually had the opportunity to offer forgiveness of sins to the one who had killed her husband. See, she believed in the awesome scope of grace And friends, so must we. That's what it means to believe in the forgiveness of sins. It means that we believe in the real and devastating problem of sin. Right? We don't take sin lightly. We don't explain it away. We believe in the power of the cross to defeat it. And we believe in the awesome scope of God's grace. That his forgiveness is offered to all. That is the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God. But we have to ask, how does one receive this? How does one come to know and experience this great gift of God? Simple answer. By grace, through faith in Christ alone. John reminds us of this in our text. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess and repent and put your faith in Christ. Place all of your trust in the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Believe that he paid your debt. Believe that he paid your awful debt. That he died for all of your sins. 
believe it and glory in it. Glory in that alone, Christian. Don't, don't let for a second any of your good works creep up. Don't let any of those good works make you think for a second that you could be made righteous before God apart from Christ. How many of us have had conversation with, conversations with friends, loved ones, co-workers? And sometimes we're having, we're having a deep, good gospel conversation. And we get to that point where, you know, amidst all the fear inside of us, we actually say, what do you think is going to happen? Like, what would you say if you stood before God Almighty who created you? Sometimes they, they reply flippantly, right? They say, oh, I'll worry about that some other day. But sometimes you get an actual straight answer. And what do they say? They, they might say something like, well, you know, I've been a pretty good person. You know, I love my wife, take care of my kids. I go to work every day, pay my taxes. Right? Their, their concept of sin is just pitiful. They don't realize how much they've offended God. I know the only way to receive the forgiveness of sins is by grace, through faith in Christ alone. That's how you receive it. That's how you receive it. Again, if you remember the beginning, I mentioned why this line of the creed was added. Right? The early church was really wrestling with the question, can we forgive those who were apostates? Like That's a real thing. Could we forgive them and bring them back? They were wondering... Would God forgive them? Because if, if God won't forgive them, how could we? Like, that's a serious question, right? And humanly speaking, forgiveness would be impossible. It would be impossible if not for the grace of God. If not for the grace of God. So sinner, I would say, come. You who are watching at home, Come. Come to Jesus. God's forgiveness goes beyond anything you can imagine. Any of the awful acts that you have done. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for you. Come. See Christ on the cross. Bearing your sins. See him all hanging on the tree. Cursed of God for you. For me. For those who've rejected him. Receive the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's how we receive this amazing, transforming gift. But we can't stop here. Many of us would be tempted to, but Jesus compels us to press forward. Having received this forgiveness, we are now called to extend it. So how do we, receive, how do we extend the forgiveness of sins? We extend it by offering it generously. Forgive me, we offer it as generously as we have received it. As generously as we have received that. And Jesus taught this wonderful truth through a parable. There There was a king, and he brought a servant before him, and this servant owed him a tremendous debt. Tremendous. He would never be able to repay this debt in his life. But the sinner cried out, Have mercy on me, king. Have mercy on me. And the king had mercy on him. The king forgave him this debt that he would never be able to repay. He was forgiven. But then, later on, the same servant 
found somebody who owed him money. A tiny fraction of what he was forgiven. And what did the servant do? Did he forgive him? No. He began to choke him, abusing him. And he had him thrown in prison until he should pay all of the debt. When this king found out what had happened, he was furious. He was livid. And he had the wicked servant thrown into prison until he should pay all of his debt. And then Jesus ended this teaching with the following words. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So also. See, the point of that story was to illustrate the amazing truth that forgiven people forgive others. Forgiven people forgive others. Again, the church didn't know back in the 4th century. They didn't know if they should bring these apostates back. But after much deliberation, they landed here. They landed on the forgiveness of sins. And they say, no, God has pardoned them, and so must we. So must we. Friends, God's pardoning of our sin is the basis for us offering it to others. That's why Jesus taught us to pray this way. He said, Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's who you are called to be, Christian. You've received this scandalous, audacious forgiveness, and now you are called to generously extend it to those who've wronged you. In a world that sees forgiveness as weakness, that mocks it, sees it as cowardly, how many of you have experienced that? I actually had an, an, an incident, an incident, forgive me, a couple weeks ago where somebody just sent a kind of a nasty email to me. And, and by God's grace, I have a good reputation in the company. So quickly people went to bat for me and they're like, Matt wouldn't say that. So I had people just, Matt, don't worry, don't worry. And, and by God's grace, it was, it was really amazing because I actually felt compassion at that moment. And, and I, I forgave this person from my heart. And it was an awesome gospel opportunity because I was able to share this with my coworker. And then he, because he loves me, he's like, no, you don't have to, you don't have to forgive her. What she did was awful, but it's like, oh, Darren, Darren, I, I, can, I can forgive her. I can forgive her. And again, I'm not saying that to, to boast, of, of course not. It was just an amazing moment when I, I felt like the world was saying, no, 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 that would be weakness for you to forgive. That would be cowardly. You don't need to do that. You're justified in being angry. But Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Ligon Duncan comments on how the ancient pagan world viewed forgiveness. He said, pagans often mocked the Christian teaching that sins could be forgiven by another, even by God. And as far as a pagan was concerned, you either make up for your misdeeds or you're forever guilty. And pagans did not consider forgiveness a virtue. Only the weak-spirited, the weak-willed, 
would forgive. We need to realize just how radical the Bible's message is of the forgiveness of sins. We aren't the first group of Christians to be living in a world where forgiveness is seen as cowardly. We're not the first people to be mocked for this. But this is who we are to be. How awesome would it be if we were men and women who in our workplaces were able to forgive those who sinned against us? Who who saw that radical forgiveness? Or what if your kids saw you forgiving your spouse? What if they saw that modeled in your home? Or what if your family saw that you were able to forgive them for the many hurts that they've given you? How awesome would that be? What a gospel witness that would be. Friends, forgiveness acknowledges that wrongs have been done to us. But we choose to to forgive and surrender the outcome to God. That's the key. That's what you are called to do even when it seems impossible. Even when you've been grossly mistreated, you choose to forgive Based on God forgiving you, you extend pardon to those who've hurt you and you leave justice to God. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He's being nailed to the cross and he modeled for us what forgiveness looks like. He said, Father, forgive them. And then Stephen, he was the first Christian martyr in Acts 7. Here he is preaching about the forgiveness of sins preaching about the hope of eternal life offered in Jesus Christ and they stoned him to death. But as he's being stoned to death, he asked God to forgive them. What seems impossible is possible with the Christian. Entrust justice to God. Entrust it to God and forgive the one who's wronged you. Because the justice that you are longing for was either paid, carried out in the body of Christ, or it will be in hell. You need to hear that. It was either paid in the body of Christ, or it will be in hell. That hurt done to you will be punished. It will not be swept under the rug. Right? Sometimes we, we become convoluted. Right? We're talking about forgiveness, and we think we're being good Christians if we say we weren't hurt. But that's not what we're saying here. It it is okay to acknowledge that you were hurt, that you were wronged, that awful things were done to you. But it's not okay to take justice in your own hands. No, God says, forgive and leave the justice to him. Because he said these words, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Your heavenly Father loves Justice. He loves righteousness. He doesn't overlook those things. Remember that. But God would say to you, precious child, He would say, You forgive. You forgive as I forgave you and leave the justice to me. Leave it to me. That's what we're called to do, church. This is the forgiveness of sins that the early church believed in. But before we close this morning, I'm sure that many of you have questions that you would love to ask. Maybe you're thinking about already 
So I think it would be helpful to to ask some of those nitty-gritty questions. So first of all, you might be thinking, how many times do I need to forgive someone? How many times do I need to forgive someone? We are in good company when we ask this, because the disciples asked it as well. Matthew 18 tells us this, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter thought he was saying, that's a lot, seven times. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that our forgiveness knows no bounds. We forget how many times we've forgiven. We've been treated unfairly or maybe we've been lied to. And you think that person doesn't deserve forgiveness anymore. No, no. They just, they're not learning their lesson. Can't do it. How many of you have thought that way before? You, Christian, are called to forget the times, many times you've forgiven them. Now, I want to be clear here. That doesn't mean that you're naive. Right? We don't want to fall into that. We don't want to be people who just walk into punches. Right? We, we, can, we can move away from the hurts. It doesn't mean that we set ourselves up to constantly be hurt by the same person. No, of course not. We should set good boundaries in place. We should use wisdom. And we should, if we have the opportunity, um, confront this person who has wronged us. But the point is, is that the Christian doesn't stop forgiving after the 10th or 11th hurt. That's the key. Remember, we are called to extend forgiveness as generously as we have received it. But secondly, you might be wondering, does forgiveness mean staying in abusive situations? Does forgiveness mean staying in abusive situations? Now, this is an important question that needs to be addressed. I'm sure many of you are wondering this at home. And we can answer it with an emphatic no. No, forgiveness does not mean staying in abusive situations. You have to hear that. Dear brother or sister, if you feel unsafe, you have the freedom to call the police. Or if you're being emotionally abused, we would... Plead with you, come, come, get help. We want to help you. Reach out to the elders here or to a fellow member in the congregation. Full stop. A Christian lawyer, he has these helpful words for us. For those who have either gone to the police or who are wondering if they should. These are so helpful, these words. He says, God's forgiveness doesn't forego, doesn't forego the sword of the government are the repercussions of sin. God can forgive a murderer of his sin and save him from eternal punishment, but the murderer still must face the punishment of sin. That's important. Right? We, we, we as Christians believe God has given us government. We believe that the government does not bear the sword in vain. We should be people who love justice. And friends, there's going to be time when space is necessary. That's sad, but it's true. We live in a messy world. But I would just say, when that is the case, when you've had to to leave your home, when you've had to get away from that person who's hurting you, it doesn't mean that you get to withhold forgiveness. I know that's hard to hear, but it is found in God's word. It means you give yourself a safe distance from that person. You seek help for yourself. But it means you pray and ask God 
to help you do the unthinkable, to do the impossible, to forgive the one who has hurt you. And I would say, it might even be that forgiveness is offered with no hope or chance of reconciliation. God hates abuse and so do we. We as his people need to be clear on this. We need to be a safe place for those who have been hurt. We are not the covered up people. That's not what forgiveness of sins means. It is not. And again, I will repeat myself because it's so important. Forgiveness is not a lack of concern for justice. It isn't sweeping things under the rug. But the Christian is in the paradoxical place of being able to both forgive and to pray that, that justice would be done. We, we can do that. The problem is, is that often we bend, right? we fall into one of the ditches too dangerously. Right? We say, I'm not forgiving that person until I get my pound of flesh. Doesn't that sound like the current culture? Or we can fall on the flip side where we think we should, all we have to do is forgive and we don't worry about justice and then people get hurt. And people are not, they don't face consequences that they should We forgive and we pray for justice, but we leave that justice to God. He will dole it out in his timing. And before we move on from this point, I think it needs to be said, ultimately, brothers and sisters, we should be the people who long for reconciliation. We believe in scandalous grace, don't we? Or we believe that God forgave sinners who hated him. So we believe as well that reconciliation in times when we think it would be impossible is possible. Because God is good. Because he's filled his people with his Holy Spirit. And he can transform a heart. Just like Levi mentioned last week, you know, we went through the chaotic Corinthian church. right? And we saw that there was a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And as Levi pointed out, the Corinthians, they thought they were doing something grand. They're like, look at this, we've got him in our midst. We're forgiving him. We're not, we're not going to discipline him. Look at that. Yeah. And Paul says, what? No, no, that, that's not the thing to do. You need to excommunicate that man. You need to, to purge the sin, purge the evil away from you. But then if we skip to 2 Corinthians, we see that this man had repented. He had shown remorse. And Paul says, wait a second. He's, he's repented. He's shown remorse. You've vetted him. Well, why is he still outside of the, the fold of God? Why have you kept him at bay? Bring him home. Bring him home. Friends, we need to be the people who long to see reconciliation, even in, in, in difficult circumstances, seemingly impossible circumstances. We're going to put we're going to use wisdom and we're going to put good and safe boundaries in place, right? Amen to that. But if possible, we want to see reconciliation. And finally, you might be asking, is forgiveness a feeling or a choice? Is forgiveness a feeling or a choice? Simple answer, forgiveness is a choice. It's just like any other good virtue that God calls us to. We have to work at it. In our flesh, we want a pound of flesh for the wrong done to us. But God would have us to choose to forgive as he's forgiven us. 
When we are wronged in whatever form, we're going to need to remind ourselves of what God has called us to. So we're going to remember these words. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul says, somebody's wronged you? Don't go pay him back. No, repay no one evil for evil. Always seek to do good. And in Ephesians, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You've been sinned against and you're angry. Rightfully so, maybe. But don't sin in your anger. Don't sin in your anger. And then later in Ephesians, Paul says this, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You're going to have to choose to do the right thing, the hard thing, the seemingly impossible thing. But you're doing it because God has forgiven you. You've experienced scandalous grace and forgiveness. So generously give it out. Friends, as we come to a close this morning, Please, I want you to feel free to reach out to to me, to Levi, the elders, to a fellow member of the congregation. If there's anything that was left unsaid, or you think something was said that was potentially harmful, please feel free to, to reach out. But this amazing doctrine is one that we can't cast aside because it's glorious. Our lives may be messy, and working out this doctrine may be difficult, but oh, how we need it. This is necessary because when we declare it, we are affirming that once and for all, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And that as far as the east is from the west, our sins are taken from us. We are washed clean. And because of that, we can generously offer it to others. Through the glorious redemption found in Jesus Christ, we are both the recipients and the extenders of this glorious forgiveness. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this really is a a two-part sermon. Lord, we need to understand, and I pray that we have understood, the wonderful, scandalous, awesome forgiveness that you have offered in Christ. Help us to receive this again to be astonished again at it. But Lord, the second part of the sermon is that we are called to be the extenders of this. So Father, help us. Help us to to give it out. Help us to be marked by, by, help, help us be people that are marked by turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. Lord, help us to have a glorious witness. Help us to be people who know that they are forgiven so much so that we would be the ones who forgive others. Even when it seems impossible, Lord, make it so. For your glory, God, and for our good. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.